Please be seated. As I contemplated a text that would dovetail with our emphasis on giving this morning, I'm reminded of the danger of doing so. It's always a bit of a complicating thing to choose a sermon about giving that does not follow in a particular series as we're used to doing through books of Scripture, but I'm reminded of the book The Civil War and Theological Crisis in which author Mark Knoll demonstrates that northern and southern ministers widely agreed that the Bible was authoritative. The problem was they were at fundamental odds concerning the Bible's teaching on slavery. Both sides claimed the Bible as their guide on this divisive issue. In his book, Confederate Morale and Church Propaganda, historian James Silver demonstrates how many southern preachers convinced their congregations that the Bible fairly demanded that they go to war against the North. The point is, we need to resist the danger to yank the Bible out of its context in order to support what we already believe and to justify what we're already doing in our context. So, for instance, God commanding Israel to go to war against the Canaanites should not be taken as God's command for the Confederate army to go to war against the Union army, or vice versa. I think, having staked that idea, that it is also wrong, however, to so isolate a passage of Scripture to its immediate context that it loses all connection to our context. We must learn to see that what God has done and said in the past is related to what He is doing and what He desires in our day. So what God is doing with Israel, there's a distinction in what He is doing with us today, but there are connections. We serve the same God. The God who uses the same characteristic brush strokes as He paints salvation history story we need to discern that as this god works with his people there are things that we can learn from the past so we we need to stay on the beam here and it's difficult we cannot fall off on the side that thinks every passage of scripture gives marching orders to obey in whatever we're endeavoring to do in our day that we are living out our life and we find a passage of Scripture that's fairly close and say that's giving us command to do what we're doing. We'll make some grave errors there if we fall off the beam on that side. But on the other side, we should not think that the works of God in the past have nothing to do with us. We are part of this continuous stream of salvation history. And so we discern the works of our God and we discern the struggles and the triumphs of His people and we identify with them. We have a family. We have a story. There is a history. There is a God who's writing it and we know Him. So we relate to people in the past. I think of this in the context of 1 Corinthians as the Apostle Paul is meditating on Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is where the Israelites rebel against God. They, they, they create their own idols and they turn from the God who's brought them out of, Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And Paul concludes his meditations on Exodus 32 with this statement, Now these things happened to Israel. And they were written down for our instruction. 
Now he's living many generations later, and yet he realizes that what has been recorded is written down for our instruction. So we don't see ourselves directly in these Old Testament narratives, but on the other hand, we see the connections to us and how there is application. So what I'd like to do this morning is to consider the history of Israel's construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and to maintain the right balance as we do so. So here we are on the one side, Exodus 35 and 36, you can begin to make your way there. We'll actually look at 25 first, but Exodus 35 and 36 is where we will settle down here for some time today. But on the one hand, we, this, these, these chapters do not provide authoritative support for Eden Baptist Church's construction project. And we're not going to twist the Bible to say that it does. On the other hand, Israel's construction of a tabernacle is written down for our instruction. And it teaches us much about how God works among His people to bring glory to His name. And we will say indeed that at this particular place in our journey, there are some unique parallels as we find ourselves in a building project. Like Israel, we find ourselves serving the cause of the Lord together as His people. We find, our, we find then resonance in this passage as we contemplate giving to our own project. So we're not claiming that God has given us a blueprint and asked us to build a building, as Israel could say about the tabernacle. But we can say that like Israel, we have pooled our resources in our corporate service of the Lord. So as we come to Exodus chapter 35, gaining a little bit of sense again of the context coming from outside of it, let's remember again that in a stunning turn of events, God has miraculously delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, God gives His law to the nation. This law code stipulating the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. The law also included detailed plans for the construction of a special sanctuary. Israel would carry the tabernacle with them as they journeyed from Mount Sinai to the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's offspring some four centuries earlier. And in this tent of meeting, God would objectify His presence. God is everywhere at all times. He's all-present. But he does, at times, objectify his presence in a certain place and location. He will do that here in this tent. And this tent will be carried along by the Israelites to the promised land as God literally goes with them in their presence. Now this tabernacle, let's consider, it did not descend out of heaven. It didn't float down from the skies and land on the desert floor. Rather, God calls His people to join with Him in what He desires to do to construct this tent. Chapter 25 of Exodus. We see those instructions given. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and they, that they make for Me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for Me. 
and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Notice the materials. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twine, linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece to service the priests. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. I don't know if God handed them a blueprint at that point or what, but it's, it's detailed plans of this construction project. This tabernacle. Now, as you make your way to chapter 35 of Exodus, there's a very strange feature here that we need to consider. A strange feature is that chapters 25 through 31 give God's instructions. We've just looked at the initial instruction to build this tabernacle, and what we find now is evidence of the furniture that's to be built to go in it, and how the courtyard is to be set up, and the dressing of the priests, and all these details are given. God's saying, here is what you are to make and build and construct and bring together. What's so strange then is as we come to chapter 35 through 39, we find the repeated text. There's a few differences and nuances as it's now in a different setting, but basically these chapters repeat themselves. It was expensive to to write books, to write scrolls in that day. And we might ask, is Moses just wasting paper here? he, He clearly is not. He he tells the first 80 years of his life in 25 verses. The Bible never wastes text, so why do you have these chapters, this large chunk of chapters going through the details of the furniture and the tabernacle entirely repeated in just a few more chapters? Why is that? This is no waste of words. It is a bold way of emphasizing the importance of obedience. God gave the script. Israel built what God said to build. And that point is made very clear by these numerous chapters of repetition in the book of Exodus. You heard the riddle, there are five bullfrogs sunning on a log in a pond. And one of the bullfrogs decides to jump into the pond. How many frogs are on the log? And of course, it seems like a simple math equation. And we would be tempted to say there's four frogs on the log now, but the answer is actually there's five because deciding to jump off a log is not jumping off a log. Right? We understand this. We decide to do all kinds of things that we never actually do. We make plans, but we don't carry them out for one reason or another. Or in this case, God makes demands. He commands us to do things, and we are fully decided to do them. But we don't. We don't carry through. I think that's the emphasis that's being demonstrated here in the text of Exodus. God has commanded something and Israel follows through and every detail is important. 
to show and to demonstrate that Israel listened specifically to God's command and followed through one step at a time. Now what concerns us here today is not that directly. We don't have an, a blueprint from God on a building and we're following through in every detail. But what concerns us today is how God chose to work through His people to fulfill His will. He specifically directs them to enter into partnership with Him to accomplish this work. That is unique. That's a great place to be. So in Exodus 25, the Lord commands. In 35 and following, we witness the fulfillment. It starts in chapter 35, verse 4, where Moses calls the people to help with the construction of the tabernacle. There's a call, first of all, to anyone to provide resources. Verse 4, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord... Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Now you're going to hear echoes of 25. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. People were to give out of their personal wealth in order to supply the raw materials used in the construction and service of the tabernacle. They were to pool their resources as they honored God in community. Now, such a situation, how do you read it? Really, this is an evidence of the amazing grace of God. What we have here, first of all, is a distinct privilege. When God genuinely moves among a people, one thing He always does is to transform their view of personal wealth. What's the old life view? The view without Christ, when it comes to personal wealth, is to hang on to it. To be greedy. To be self-oriented about our use of money. The old view says this, then many times, going to church is like going to a mugging. You have to fight to keep your money from the greedy hands of the church. In some churches, that's in, case, in, in fact the case. But that's the orientation. The transformed view is in a healthy church made up regenerate, spirit-filled followers of Christ, there's an entirely different orientation toward giving. We don't look at money the same way anymore because Christ has saved us and given us new life. So we realize, first of all, as we've already been exhorted this morning, it's not my money. Not a dime of it. All money under my control comes as a gift from God who enables me to earn it and allows me to be a steward of its use. So I do need to protect it from wrong things. I don't let it slip away. I don't give it to certain things. It's it's, it's a management issue that I need to address as a steward. But on the other hand, it's God's money. We move it around as He calls us to. Further, when Jesus saves me, He puts in my heart a desire to contribute to the advance of His cause. One of the evidences that I've come to genuine faith in Christ is that He has given me a desire to give to His cause. You find a person struggling whose, whose faith you're just really not sure about, 
you don't know if they're really a genuine believer, if, if the Spirit of God has actually given them new life. One thing you will always find is that they struggle to give to God's work. Where people are alive in God and serving Him, they want to. It's not something that you have to twist their arms and force out of them. It's a motivation that comes with the Spirit of God to realize He owns it all and it's our privilege to give it away to His cause. And we want to. And so this distinct privilege moves in in verse 5 to this proper motivation, which is what? Whoever is of a generous heart. Do you notice the word whoever? This is not a mandatory tax on the Israelites. It's not a guilt trip. Anyone who wants to participate. That seems to say then that God has opened the door and said, I'm at work here. I want to bring this about. And you have the privilege, if you wish to, to join with me. Whoever. It's an offer to anyone to join in. And it is of, of a, whoever is of a generous heart. A heart that longs to participate in a cause by giving away wealth to the advance of that cause. We don't like stingy parents, do we? Now there's the indulgent parent, which is a problem on the other hand, but there's the stingy parent. We don't like that. This parent it doesn't seem to love their children enough to feed them well. Always choosing to not give to them so that they can give to themselves. That, that doesn't please anyone. But we know that there's a generous heart in the parent that loves their children. Wanting to give and having to work to not spoil and overgive. But a generous heart that rejoices to feed and to clothe and to help and encourage the children. It's that heart that God puts in the lives of those who know Him as Savior. A generous heart that willingly contributes to others, and to the cause of Christ. And we see in verse 5 that it is indeed, thirdly, the Lord's contribution. A distinct privilege. There's the proper motivation. And there's, it is the Lord's contribution, verse 5. The Lord's contribution is an amazing statement. I take that to mean a gift of personal wealth that I intentionally devote to God in worship. And that will become a repeated emphasis throughout this text. Watch for it. It is the Lord's contribution. A contribution of my wealth to God in worship. So we have a call to anyone to provide resources. Secondly, there is here a call for some to provide skilled labor. Verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. God scatters skills among His people. Some are equipped with the skill to build things, to visualize, to design, to fashion, to decorate. And further, there are skill, levels of skill among those that are so endowed. We'll see that momentarily. But God has scattered through His people, people that can get this done. Everyone is free to give. Some people are skilled to actually construct. Verse 11. All that the Lord has commanded, here's what He's commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat. Keep that peace in view. And the veil of the screen, the inner sanctum. 
The table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron and the priests, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Each piece is important. And the people scattered to their tents with Moses' challenge ringing in their ears. Verse 20, they, all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. How will they respond to the project that's been laid out for them? God has commanded Moses. Moses has commanded the people. Now what's going to happen? What happens next is there's a beautiful picture here. We see Moses' call to the people. Now God's response to Moses' call. Verse 21, and they came. It's a crucial phrase in this narrative. And they came. We see them coming from their tents, assembling together and bringing their resources that they've gathered out of their tents. That's all they had. Any family had was just a tent and they rummaged around within their tents and here they come back to this central place dropping off all of their contributions to God. And they came. They not only decided to give, they jumped off the log. They actually did it. And notice here in verse 21, it is everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. That's who gave. The emphasis falls on an internal motivation that compels the giver to participate through giving. Am I right to conclude this? I think it's right, we may infer, that some were not stirred to give. It was those who were stirred, those whose heart was stirred, everyone whose spirit moved him that gave, that might indicate there were some who were not so stirred. Maybe some simply had nothing they could spare. Perhaps some had attitudes that were enslaved to greed. And so they did not participate in this gift. But what verse 22 says literally in the Hebrew is also instructive. It's, it's, the gifts are dedicated to the Lord. It says it this way, they waved a wave offering of gold to the Lord. A wave offering, they would literally take and wave before God. Now it could be taken figuratively here. But there were wave offerings that you lifted up your offering and you waved it before God. To say, in a sense, very simply and tangibly, here it is. I bring it to you. I was helping us, not helping God out. It's not that he can't see the gift. But it helps us to just wave it before him. It would be sort of weird, wouldn't it, if we took our checks here and waved them over our head before we put them in the offering plate? There are probably some real good reasons not to do that. But that's the sense here. They bring it and say, God, here it is. They didn't see it as grudgingly, okay, Moses, here you go. But they waved it before the face of God in a sense and said, I bring this to you and to your honor. Again, the Hebrew who waved a wave offering of gold to the Lord. Verse 23, 
And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen of, or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contributions. There it is, is again, the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them, there it is again, to use their skill, spun the goat's hair. So they're using their abilities to make this gift and then to bring it as their hearts are stirred. And not only the common people, but also the leaders, verse 27, brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece. That was over the chest of the high priest. And spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, here it is again, whose heart moved them to bring anything that the wor- for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, they brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. We cannot miss the emphasis upon the stirring up of their hearts. Verse 22, verse 26, verse 29. Their hearts are moved and stirred. This is not stirring by way of false guilt. They're not responding to psychological pressure. Now let's balance this. Moses does lay out what they need to do. He doesn't just say, you know, if you're, if you're moved to do so, let's bring some contributions. We'll see where that puts us and then see what we do with it. No, he says, here's the plan. Here's the vision. Here's what we need. He very clearly articulates that. And then leaves it with them to bring and to contribute. But it's, it's not false guilt. It's not psychological pressure. Moses does not apply manipulative pressure, nor is participation mandatory. The emphasis is on whoever is of a generous heart. That one is privileged to participate. God has opened the door of this opportunity, and they can have a part of it. And God's people respond. They respond with giving. They come from all around their tents and they bring these gifts together so that the work can be carried forward. Secondly, God's people respond in service. Verse 30. In giving, first of all. Secondly, in service. Verse 30, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he, was, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahimist, Hisamach of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. 
Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So we witness here as the people respond in service the gifting of God. God uniquely gifted Bezalel to serve as the master craftsman of the tabernacle. Bezalel, however, does not do everything, does he? He teaches others to join him in the work, verse 34. Especially a holy but there's others that are referenced here, others who are involved in the construction of the sanctuary. So God gave to Bezalel, then to Aholiab, unique skills to complete the work. It's always a delight to watch God do this. Not a direct parallel, but a resonance there to the gifts that God gives to His church. It's a joy to watch Him gift His people with various skills as they join together to fulfill the work. And it's a wonder to watch this right now in our congregation. A similar gifting that God gives of skill. To do a work, to do a job that not all of us can do. We need to come to discern what our skills are. But I just think of our building committee, and I, just, I watch this week in and week out to witness those who have the unique skills to know how buildings are constructed and how they function. They're almost like medical doctors talking about a body, it seems to me. But they they talk about the pieces and how they work together and how they fit together. There's people that have unique skills. They get that. They understand that. While our culture will not allow them to actually build the building, they could if they had the opportunity. Because they get how it works. There's others on our committee who understand how finances work and rejoice to put those numbers together and to keep watching over them. There's others who have ability uh, in arborist skills and decorative skills. And as our involvement as a church begins in a few short days, there are people lining up to fulfill certain duties that understand how to fulfill those things. They have the skill from God to pull that off. And I sit back and just watch it all in amazement. I, I, I really wish I could have more skill than I do. There's been construction projects in my house, and there's been number, a number of construction projects here in this building, and I'm still not getting it. I try, I've learned a lot, but it's not my skill. I've come to know what my skill is in all of this. I am uniquely gifted at cleaning up the mess. That, that's, that's, I, I like to clean I like to organize stuff, and they make all the dust and all the issues, and I I clean it up. That's a place where I'm helpful, and I can carry boards and things like that. I just don't have that skill. I wish I did. I'd love to be an engineer if I could choose to be one, but I don't have that. And no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to really develop it. I've got to think about it and work on it. But we all have unique abilities, and we fit in like puzzle pieces to accomplish what God has enabled us to accomplish. And we see then in verse 2, the willingness of the people. They respond in this service by being gifted, and secondly, their willingness is an essential part of the equation, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, so you see not just those two, but others as well, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. You can't miss the parallel there. 
We've been seeing over and again God stirring the hearts of His people to give. Now we see the stirring of people's hearts to use their skill to construct. And so, with our building project, I'm not saying that if you don't sense such a stirring that you should not come. Uh, We will all have to push ourselves in these next couple of months to fulfill many projects, but I know and believe with all of my heart that God is going to stir up and motivate some people to say, I'm going to take part in that insanity. I'm going to go over to that building and I'm going to take the risks that are there. I'm going to set time aside. I'm going to use the skills that I have as mundane as they may be and I'm going to work and serve there. That's what God does with Israel here in the tabernacle, and I believe He has done that through the years in this church, to stir up people to say, I care about a project outside of my own family, outside of my own house, my own possessions. I want to serve the cause of Christ by giving my skill. There's a willingness. There's there's the equipping of the people with divine skill. There's the willingness of the people to respond. And then we find, thirdly, the abundant supply in verse 3. Here, it all starts to come together. And, verse 3 of chapter 36, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Isn't that a great scene? Quit giving. We've got enough. Wow. The Israelites energetically labor for God. Throughout the camp, the Spirit moves. God's people give freely. And before you know it, the contributions overwhelm the craftsmen. Stop giving. The supply is enough. God moves in His people to supply what is necessary to accomplish the work. And the Israelites, empowered by God, accomplished it. And that's the point. They did what God called them to do. Now again, the building that we're constructing on Highway 13 in Burnsville is not a tabernacle. I guarantee you, God did not hand us the blueprint. Wow, what kind of time that would have saved if He had. He didn't. We've been laboring over that blueprint for years. God did not command us to construct that building. And we have never said that if you give to that building, you are following the command of God. Not at all. But having said that, we cannot fail to celebrate the unique opportunity that is ours to give of our wealth and to work together as God's people to honor His name. He is at work in this. And there's there's this danger that we face of patting ourselves on the back as we celebrate what we've brought together. 
But there's a danger on the other hand to see God work among us and to know that He is doing that work and to say nothing. So we don't broadcast this outside necessarily. We're not seeking to trumpet anything great about us outside. This is a family talk here today. But here as a family, we must stop and give thanks to God for providing through His people abundantly. We celebrate the generous hearts in our congregation with our project. There are generous hearts here. There are people who have, whose hearts have been stirred to contribute sacrificially. And what is the source of all of this? Here's where we need to stop. I think it's right for us to do so today. What is the source of all this? Do we pat ourselves on the back? Who has stirred our hearts? Who has moved our spirits? Who has given us a willing heart? Who has gifted our people with the skills to fulfill this work? Is it not the God of Israel? Will we stand up in here and say, it's me? I'm so great? Do we not say as we look back in our lives that God has provided, God has moved, God has done something among us? We pause to give Him thanks. In our assembly, God is transforming a people to think differently about wealth. In this congregation, He's transforming a people to worship His name through the sacrifice of money. There's only one reason that we're where we are. And that is there are people in this congregation who have said, I am going to invest in eternity. They've made decisions that will not help them in this life. And I thank God to walk among such people. In this assembly, He's raising up a people to labor also with their skill to accomplish the work that He's given us to do. God is moving among us and we simply pause this day to praise Him for what He's done. Just a quick visual look of some specifics here. We'll talk more pointedly tonight. There's some things on here that are not filled out. We'll fill them out this evening and we'll talk about our strategy here for this coming year as we work to the annual meeting on the 22nd. Important meeting tonight as we consider these things, but just in a, in a quick look. Commitments made to this building and giving that has gone, we call it, for those who visit, the crossroads because we're moving out of the shadows back here onto the main highway. So we speak of it as moving to the crossroads. 588000 has been given to that in two years. Now, how you look at that crossroads and what's left, we'll talk about that, but there was also that little crisis moment of bridging the gap and allowing for our uh, work to go on. Some of that was early crossroads giving, but there was also 61539 that specifically was given just to keep the project alive. Then there were 51809 in upgrades that were given here recently. Sale of furniture, why do you put that on there? Well, the Humane Society had furniture that we purchased. Somebody put in time and effort to sell that furniture and put it into the pot. So we acknowledge that effort. And then excess giving in 2010 wasn't specifically crossroads giving, but was extra giving by the church that we put toward this project. 716656 in two years.
I can't explain that, but that God has done it. Because only He, now clearly, that money's there. It didn't drop out of heaven. But only He can move and stir us to bind our hearts together and to give away wealth that could be servicing us in this life for a long time to come and say to God, as we wave it before Him, it's yours. Now what's the point of all of this? We stop here uniquely to celebrate this particular place in our church's journey, but this isn't the heart of it. There's no ultimate success even in these gifts. What's at the heart of it comes back to why was there a tabernacle? Remember the tabernacle is built because it is a place to meet with God. We noted the veil of that inner sanctum behind which there was a box covered in gold and there was a lid on that box. And God provides in His law code this system by which a high priest would go in behind that veil once a year. He would only come one way and that's with the blood of a sacrificial animal with Him. And He would place the blood of that substitute sacrifice on the lid of that box over which resided the gleaming glory of God. And so in the box is the law of God, the Word of God, which we as sinners violate. And above that ark, that box, is the presence of God. In between is the blood of the sacrifice. Why a tabernacle? To demonstrate this concept that there is a substitute who dies in behalf of the people and who is interposed between God and our violations of His law. We know we're gathered here today because we believe as a church that substitute sacrifice, that blood, is the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that blood, our sin against God's law, God's holiness. There's a gap there that cannot be bridged except by the death of Jesus in our place. Taking the penalty of our sin and bleeding, giving His life so that His blood as the Lamb of God is interposed between a holy God and us in our sinfulness. Why a tabernacle? To point ultimately to the death of Jesus Christ as the satisfaction of God's anger against sinners. If you've not come to repent of your sin, to see yourselves as a violator of the book in the box, you need to come today and say that I break the law of God I do not add up to His righteousness and I need to be rescued from His holy presence. That rescue comes as you turn from your sin and place your hope and your trust in the blood of Jesus Christ being shed to take the penalty of your sin and then to forgive you that you may walk into the presence of God. Like the high priest did once a year, now that Christ has been sacrificed, we can come into the presence of God as a church week by week, day by day, moment by moment, we enter into His presence.
in our annual all-night prayer meeting that took place just a few hours ago, and Friday night through into Saturday morning, we came on our knees before God in this place to bathe in prayer all that this congregation will do if God gives us life in this coming year. To bathe in prayer the spread of the Gospel to the nations. To bathe in prayer every event and every person that attends this church. To say in this way at the beginning of the year, all that we do must come from the power and the strength of God. We do that annually to make this statement boldly. We can go nowhere without God's presence. As we gather as a church then, we ask why a church building? It's unnecessary. It's not God's command. But it is a place where we proclaim this Gospel. The death and resurrection of Christ. And it is a place then where we gather for prayer because now we can come into the presence of God directly as a congregation because of what Jesus has done. His death fully satisfies the wrath of God that by grace we walk into the presence of our Father and we're received. Not because we're sinless, but because Christ has saved us. Why a tabernacle? Why a meeting place with God to demonstrate this? Why a church? Not a building, but why a church? We live together as a demonstration of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we worship Him through giving, through song, through edification to say He's made us new. We are now a new temple in which God dwells by His Spirit. I think He's dwelling here. I believe He's going with us. By His grace, we will remain faithful and be a body that worships His name. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we praise You from whom all blessings flow. Praising You above all, not for a building, but for the movement in the hearts of Your people to do sacrifice and to use skill to press forward Your cause. We give praise ultimately for our Lord Jesus Christ, for His death and resurrection. I pray for anyone that does not know the joy of being delivered from sin and coming into Your presence with confidence. I pray, God, that You'll bring them to the light of the Gospel today. For those of us who know You, we sing with all of our heart to Your praise and to Your glory. Great things You have done. Lord, You need to do many greater things among us. We pray that You will, that You'll guide us and direct us in the days ahead and go with us. Please go with us. May Your presence be evidenced in all that we do. May Jesus' name be exalted. It is through Him that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing in response. Thinking of what God has done for us in Christ, of what He's done here recently in our congregation, let's praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from...